By the way, thank you again for being our first guest on this podcast. You are oh, the godfather thanks. of this show. Thank you, sir. That's an honor. I love y'all's intention, and I wish the world knew you existed. Zambi is, time has ended, number one, and Zambi's on the other side of time, and he's on the other side of space, and time and space are collapsing to bring more now, which is Zambiism in its highest form, so you can't predict Zambi at all, but he said this the other day, I said, what are the two states under Idaho, and he said, Georgia and Florida, once again, he's right. <laughs> When did you first meet Zambi? Do you remember? 1973, August 4th. Yeah. He was a sound man in a club in Pensacola, Florida. And I but, said, how do you get to your house? He had tapes. He said, go to the fork and take it. <laughs> Yogi Berra, too. <laughs> and he left Pensacola because of the traffic moved to Atlanta. That's what I like. <laughs> Joe, what's Tom Brady going to do against the Falcons? Three or four hundred yards, whichever comes first. (laughs) It's endless. Well, it is with shockingly aching heart that we speak to you today, folks. Um... Yesterday we were Seth and I were blessed to be the only media backstage at the event celebrating the life the life and music of Colonel Bruce Hampton the godfather of this show of Atlanta music and of jam in general would you say of jam in general of Zambi a uh, shaman a man not of this planet um and the, the the first thing that strikes me is the, the the stunning contrast of the whole day of these great musicians that we were blessed to be around on this special day, and they were so joyous and so full of love and energy and so happy to be shining a light and doing this for Colonel. And then you fast forward to me being backstage after, as Colonel's being attended to, and those same musicians with very frightened and confused looks on their faces, I will... Remember that for the rest of my life. Absolutely. Absolutely, Rob. Um, for those that, that know the show, know how uh, how special Bruce is and has been to us. Um, he's, 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 a, he, he's been a dear friend to my family. And, you know, he's been over for holidays. And he's, he's, been, he's been a part of the soundtrack and fabric of, of my life since, since college. And um, and it's not just musicians that he appreciates purity of intention. He told us that he could tell what we were doing was pure. We're not getting paid. What's more pure than that? The gentleman who was the MC at the at the event spoke of how Colonel was his first interview. You know, mm-hmm. he shined a light on people. Musicians are not usually musicians, but also people around the music world who who you know really cared, really listened, and really had strong. Uh, big heart about this whole thing it's really hard for us to process this is a very surreal uh 
It's just so surreal. I mean, yesterday the day started being so surreal. Um, yeah, in a good way. In a good way, and ended in a in a much different way. And 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 uh, we're having we're having a time processing this, and we're we're thinking that's I was why up all night. Thank God for my dog. If not for my dog, I wouldn't have smiled at all in the last twelve hours. We felt that after going back and forth and talking and talking and talking, we decided we. We wanted to go ahead and just go ahead and share some stuff with you all. Um, we go ahead, Rob. Um, but a couple thoughts first. Um, he now joins for me. Uh, there's now a trio of musicians that are the most profound losses to me. Garcia and Zappa being the other two. And one thing I said to Zappa fans and Deadheads at the time, in an effort to comfort them, is you got to try to remember. You're lucky to have lived on the planet when these people lived on the planet. You're lucky to have seen them live, and their music lives on. So um, maybe there's some solace in that. And the second thing, um, I go back to uh, when my uh, mother was dying. (laughs) She died on Mother's Day, 1992. So I'm no stranger to poorly timed death. (laughs) But anyways, one thing she said to me. What'd she say, Rob? Was when people cry over other people dying, they're really crying about themselves. Now, my mom, she, was, she could be blunt. She was wisdom, and she was cynicism, and she was a lot of things. But let's take that thought into this situation. Let's, let's remove ourselves from the pain, whether you're a musician on the stage, whether you're a person in the room, whether you're just a fan of Colonel Bruce's Hampton. Let's try to transcend the moment, like he would say. Yeah. Let's try to remote view from 10 years from now. Remote back view, would that be? And we have this man who died on one of the greatest stages in the world in the city that he loved, playing a song by the musician he most loved, Bobby Blue Bland, surrounded by musicians he touched. Some owe their careers to him, you know? Some, all of them. All of them. Not, well, just, not just the musicians, the photographers, the, the fans. Everybody there was touched by Bruce. Everybody there. And this is the toughest thing. You might want to fast forward and listen to this one five, ten years from now or something, but... He spoofed us. He pranked us. Everybody in the room thought he was goofing. He went out doing what he loves best, theatrically spoofing an audience, confusing them, keeping them off guard. I, I, it, I'm sure a lot of them are in pain. It's hard to see that now, but you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking. I was up all night, did a lot of walking, uh, and that was that was the overriding takeaway yeah. thought. You know, Rob, I gotta say. We talk a lot about Zambi. We even we started the show today with Zambi, Bruce talking about Zambiism. And before he passed, the last song before they went into Love Light was Zambi. I mean, it was it was Zambi, just straight up Zambi. Joe Zambi's there, Sipes dressed up uh, with the cape and doing the whole Zambi thing, and the energy was just beyond. And and I ha- I have to say is I, I I don't think we witnessed a death. I think we witnessed a transcending. Yeah, it, something large was going on there, and uh, it's bigger than all of us. And the pain that we're feeling is is a now thing. The thing that happened last night at the Fox Theater is a forever thing. And uh, I'm so so glad it happened. And you know what, Colonel Bruce is too. I guarantee you that Colonel Bruce is very thankful. That that event took place. Oh yeah, I hear him smiling. I hear him laughing. He w- he he doesn't want us to be sad. He wants us to. He wants us to be confused and perplexed and challenged. Yes. 
And we are. I mean, he is the man that sings another song in the middle of another song. And he just, he did, he did it to the audience. He did it to all of us. Uh, and you know, uh, another analogy, I remember uh, Dylan opening for the dead in 95 and Garcia sitting in with him and, and uh, this is an RFK and I mean, I'll just, at the risk of sounding like a know-it-all deadhead, the, the, the RFK shows were the only two really good solid shows of that tour. Garcia for was on a game because Hornsby was joining apparently for those two shows and Garcia was trying to move him back into the band and was on his best behavior and they played two great shows in RFK in the middle of a very tough, tough tour. And uh, Dylan opened the second of those. So the last Grateful Dead, really great, full Grateful Dead show. And Soldier's Field has has meaning. I'm not, I'm not disrespecting it. And the Visions of Johanna and So Many Roads are amazing, powerful stuff, but they're not solid, amazing, killer Grateful Dead shows like these two. Point being, Garcia comes out with Dylan. And sits into the last two songs, and at the end of it, they they I'd seen Jerry and Dylan played it before. I'd never seen them embrace. Garcia and Dylan hugged at the end of that set, and I got a chill. And I got that same chill when 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 Colonel was at Brandon Niederauer's feet. He passed a lot over to Brandon. I think. And, uh, and, and, I feel and, for I feel for Brandon. That's got to be heavy for that boy. I mean, but fourteen was, years old. He's uh, blessed. He's blessed with a talent and and. Uh, the uh, motivation to nourish and uh, and um, I'm not doing well with the words enhance, improve on that talent. And yeah. now um, he's perhaps been given a torch, and and maybe that's a heavy thing. But you know, blessings come with yeah challenges. They do, Rob. You said something to me uh, this morning that's really resonating as well. No, no time. Ah, time. It's all right. It's a podcast. It is. Take your time. <laughs> now, we, we were talking about, um, here you go. Now, more than ever, is a time that we as a people need to be exposed to someone as amazing as Bruce with no ego. I know, yes. About being egoless and not taking herself too seriously, but taking her crafts seriously. That's something that's slipping away in the world. And uh, there's a giant, now there's a lot of people across the country today looking into who is this Colonel Bruce Hampton guy? What's he all about? And let's hope maybe that side of him rubs off on people a little bit, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of ego stuff going on. Lot, and I think that's a lot of the polarization of our culture and a lot of the, that's, a, in my opinion, that's one of the reasons I uh, am reticent about uh, political extremists, but mm-hmm. I don't want to get it on it, both sides. Religious extremists, any extremist yeah, for that. Anything extreme can, can be uh, easy to be seen as some part ego-driven. And, and the ego, you know, it can be good in some ways, but, the, you know, a lot of great people have been taken down by their ego. Yeah. You got to watch your ego, people. And I'll tell you another thing, I, just for contrast, you know, that last fall I, I got divorced and, you know, I, I married a woman who I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, you know, and without getting into details, you, you, I'll write a book someday, but she, she proved herself not worthy of that and it was a very painful autumn. Now looks like a picnic compared to what I'm feeling today. But so it's not, any of these words I say are not without sadness. It's just, this was an unusual guy. I mean, beautifully unusual. It, it kind of makes sense to me in a weird way that he would go out this way. Yeah, well, that's my point. 
the only thing being the pain yeah that he wouldn't want to bring pain to these other musicians or or you know haunt them in any way so you kind of owe it to the you, you musicians who I hope listen to this in a way you owe it to Colonel to not focus on the pain to focus on on the beauty of of that night however hard that may be if you particularly if you're on that stage but that still was a beautiful and powerful and special special night you, you, you know you, you, I, you don't get more special than that it's uh it's it's unbelievable so let's move on we're well gonna... I want to I want to say that uh, we we want to share with you all a couple just a, a couple clips of of some of the artists before the show talking about Bruce. We only want to share a little bit. We 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 met with a lot of artists yesterday. We we had some great interviews, and there'll be a time we'll do something with those. But we're gonna we're just gonna go through and select a little bit of what people had to say that can help shine a light on who Colonel was and what 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 he meant to them as a musician, as a shaman, as a teacher, as a as everything, and and there's so many underlining themes that each of these musicians' stories. And again, we're only going to share a couple with you here. But through the ten or twelve musicians we 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 sat with yesterday, at all different levels in their careers, they all shared very similar teachings, and in teachings that came to them in different ways. So, so just we want to just take a listen. We're we're gonna we're gonna tune out here and uh, and just let these play out. Uh, we'll start. Um, Rob, who do you want to who, who do you want to go, go with? Let's go, Jeff Sipe, John Bell, John Fishman, Jeff Mosher. With, yeah, let's end with Jeff Mosher. And you know, um, everybody was great, but I just want to say uh, Jeff Mosher. The interview he gave us was tremendously eloquent and moving. And and uh, after what happened, I mean, it, it you're. You, one day we'll play that interview for you. It was a very heavy, heavy interview. And and, uh, and I last night learned, well, I already kind of knew about Mosier, but without getting into detail, um, I learned what an incredibly special human being John Bell is. Yeah. So God bless you, John Bell. All right, folks. Rest in peace, Colonel. Thank you for all your teachings. Thank you for your friendship. We're looking to miss you. Knoxville, Tennessee, and Chuck Burnley was the owner, and on the bottom floor was a cafe, the second floor was an art gallery and a uh, performance hall, and then the third floor, floor was his penthouse. So we'd, we'd have a steady once a month there for the summer, I think it was in 90, 90 91, just as the ARU was forming, and so 
we're up in the penthouse and Bruce walks in to the room. There's probably seven of us in the room, the band and some other folks. And in his pocket, he has torn pieces of paper <laughs> with numbers written up. And he asks us one by one to pick two numbers between one and 100. And he reaches into his pocket and gets everybody right except me. He got me on the fourth try. That is staggering to yeah. me. How could anybody do that? Uh, there's another one. Uh, we were in the same place, and this uh, happy-go-lucky uh, hippie girl comes knocking and walks into the room. Hey, fellas, and sits herself down, you know, and Bruce just immediately locks onto her and says uh, something like, your father, he has wire-frame glasses. He's in Texas. He's in jail. He has a tattoo, and he's in for cocaine smuggling. And she freaks out and runs out of the room. And then 30 seconds later, the door creaks open. She sticks her head in there and she says, how did you do that? And she walks back to the table and sits down and he proceeds to tell her the rest of the story. The rest of the story. Yeah. Oh, my God. And Good here's night. another one. A little five points <laughs> pub. ARU is just forming. We have Matt Monday and I think Jimmy was just about to... Uh, he was in the audience, you know, he was just forming. Um, so we take a break from the first set and we'll walk over to the bar, Bruce and I. And there's two ladies there that he starts talking to and the, the four of us are just rapping. And he picks something up from one of the ladies and says, your brother and your father aren't getting along. And she gets real serious, you know, and she wants to hear more. And he starts telling her about her role in four months to heal the thing and where they're going to meet. And she just cr starts crying, and he starts crying. Bruce and this lady just met, you know, a minute ago. And uh, he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll stop if you want me to. And she says, no, this makes perfect sense, please continue. So he locked on to her story, mm -hmm. and uh, for whatever it meant to her, it was really real. So. Whatever that skill is, it seems like a skill that would certainly serve improvisation. Yeah, here's another one. Matt okay. Mundy just joined the group, and he's playing a solo, a little five points pub. He's up on stage, and he's in the middle of this solo, burning away on his acoustic mandolin. And in his right ear, he hears Bruce give him an address. And later on, he told us that during the solo, he was trying to figure out what the address was to his friend because he was writing him a letter, and he forgot the address. Bruce gave it to him in the middle oh, of his solo. Wow. That's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so these are, these are just a few of the many, many stories. Mm -hmm. I, I met him when I was eight, uh, 25. It was 1984. And uh, he was a softball coach, a terrific athlete, and a performance artist who played a little bit of music. But the antics really were the show. Yeah. And music backed up the, the performance art.
You learn about a lot about yourself around Bruce. And I, I think the first time that I experienced him, he was playing with Tinsley Ellis and the Stained Souls at the Uptown Lounge. And, um, and I was playing pinball and playing to their music. That was how I danced. <laughs> that was how I danced. And um, there weren't a whole lot of people in the joint, but I remember them uh, all of a sudden putting their instruments down and coming off the stage and um, doing the elephant walk. <laughs> like with a hand between yeah, yeah, their between, legs. Exactly. Were they playing Mancini's <laughs> Elephant Walk too? Say what? Were they playing the song too? They might have, yeah, at first <laughs> before they left the stage. And then it, so it was, um, so it's like this surrealness that would catch up to you. You're, all of a sudden you were watching it and going, this is really whacked. And, um, and then the first time we got, uh, first time we met was, uh, we were on Landslide Records together, and we just signed. And Rothschild, right? Yep. And um, and I think and I think Michael had. Uh, we were playing a college gig, some uh, Agnes Scott College. We were playing here. That's, yeah, here that's in what Bruce has. Is that his grandmother had a house there or something like that? Or yeah, I wouldn't believe it. He's been Atlanta forever, and uh, so Michael had Bruce. Uh, deliver our first pressings which is a big deal for you when you're a brand new band mm-hmm. and um, and we just got to know each other from that and then there was you know we would hook up and do gigs together and some other encounters and um, the basic I don't know if you've talked to Dave I know he has a story in his head well I, we all do um, we were playing the Nick um, in Birmingham, it was the first time we saw. This was the first incarnation of Aquarium Rescue Unit, and they're sitting there playing with egg beaters and, <laughs> um, you know, just wrestling moves and stuff. It, it was just. It was there was a stage show going, but the music was just like wow. Yeah. And so we were we were totally dismantled. We really, we really couldn't play after that. We were so self-aware; it just it just cracked us open. And um, and I remember some guy from another another band that was you know one of the many touring bands that we all kind of shared spaces with. And he just kind of looked after the show. He just like, "What happened to you guys?" He goes, "What was that all about?" And um, it was it was wild. We were so self aware, and we had just witnessed music being performed in a way that we hadn't seen before. And so it was, uh, you know, you wake up the next morning and and you go, "Well, that happened." <laughs> and, what did it? What happened? And you, and you just go, "Well, you knew you didn't know if it was going to be lasting, but." I th- you know I think I remember making a conscious choice to be okay with whatever I was, however I was applying myself, and um, you know take it from there. Because there was a part that was just like part of you was trying to think along those lines that you just experienced. It was it was it was like I say, it cracked us open. It was mm-hmm. really it was really whacked. 
but yeah, we came into a little realm of self-acceptance. And <laughs> so then you ended up on the Horde tour with them. Uh-huh. Did, how did that? Did you? Were you guys? I think if I understood the story right, did you, were you guys a part of getting the Colonel uh, uh, ARU onto the Horde tour? Yeah, it was basically, as I recall, it was uh, Blues Traveler and Fish and Widespread Panic and. Um, we, uh, oh, let me see. Well, basically, we had been playing gigs together, and you know, we'd have an audience in the south, so we'd come have them play with us, and we'd get to go play up in New York or Vermont with those guys, and so starting to share territories and yeah. getting exposed, and so, uh, but here we were, summer was coming up, and um, we thought that what if we got it together and went into bigger venues, you know, the sheds, the summer the summer shed venues, and um, charge a really reasonable ticket price and try to get as many people to come as possible. It was a bargain. It was like 20 25 bucks or something, right? It, for five the, or six I think the first year was 10. Wow. And I went to the first one. It was actually in a small arena in Portland, Maine. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, there was a little shift, sh- uh, shape-shifting. Um, they had, oh, what was it, band? No, 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 no. Spin Doctors. doctors. Spin Doctors. <laughs> and, and we were like, man, we got to have Bruce and the Aquarium Rescue. And they were like, who's that? Yeah. I was like, you'll see. (laughs) You got, you know, because he was, and then he, I think he had the same effect on those guys. We all became just kind of enamored with what they were doing on stage and and, uh, supporting each other. And um, so when there was a little dose of, uh, oh, it was our banjo playing buddy. Who's a really good... Uh, Bela Fleck? Bela, yeah. Cause, <laughs> really, really good. <laughs> there's a couple of more reallys in there. <laughs> oh, God, he had the Wootens with him, so that was all uh, of a sudden we were seeing... Oh, they, they were on the Horde Tour as well? The, That's the Southern shows. Fish oh, played the Four North, and then oh, Fleck... Oh, yeah, the Fish decided they, they wanted to stay up north, and, um, and so Bela did the second leg. Okay. And I think the first year we did like eight shows, something like that. Yeah. And um, so, but that was... Uh, and expanded a little mm-hmm. from there, and, um, but uh, yeah, that, so that was the beginning, as I recall. <laughs> and I love that the one I went to, and at least one others, uh, when ARU ended their set, they just continued jamming. You guys would come out one by one, and it would morph into a widespread set. Whose idea was that, and and how fun, and or otherwise, is that? <laughs> well. I'm sure it came from one of our camps, um, but uh, we, you know we were, we were spending a lot of time together. So this was the kind of stuff we would do when we'd be playing gigs together, and so we jammed together a lot. And it was solely based on we were going to get twenty extra minutes to play. You know, both bands would each get like ah. basically ten extra minutes to so play. You have to set up all the equipment for both bands. <laughs> Music economics here, yes. And um, well, but it was 
I mean, it was pretty heavy because we were rolling in um, another drum kit and had to have enough mics and lines for that. So it was, uh, there was a lot of logistics involved as far as the crew went. Um, but mostly it was because when we were, we we did the lineup like, you know, the more popular bands that were, you know, selling more tickets in a certain area. Um, and the North would be um, Blues Traveler and Fish and stuff. And so we had shorter, earlier sets. And so that we just um, thought we'd kind of try that just to do something different. And, uh, and it, yeah, it worked. It was, it was fun. I still... I was going through my storage space i still got some dat tapes from the the soundboards really? did you pop them on uh-uh. i don't have a you're dat, DAT player anymore you have the DAT playing, <laughs> right i do so bruce though the colonel's uh he's the staple in, in when it comes to sitting in with uh with panic um and that's uh how often is it that you bring something to him saying, hey, Bruce, got to come out and you know, work on this song? Or is it mostly just, let's do Love Light and shine on it? Dude, to die. dude man, we'll play... Uh, we'll start Smokestack and he'll be singing Nobody's Fault But Mine. <laughs> Every, I mean, uh, everything we've done, we just said, hey, let's do this. And yeah. he gets on stage and what happens, happens. That's the best. Uh, so okay, so let's talk. Give us a give us a share a story, a funny story that may have happened with Bruce uh, uh, sitting with you, Al, or, or anything really, or anything along yeah. the way. Well, shoot, I mean, along those same lines, when we did our acoustic tour, the you're talking about the wood tour, yeah, and he came in and sat in with us, and uh, I mean, again, it was uh, I, what were we playing, fixing to die, but uh, he was singing at an off time. And we just wrote it out, it, and it it works. Oh yeah, it worked. But it was like he never he never let go of it. He never tried to get back on track, and um, we stay where we were, and it still worked. It made the record. Yeah. Did you uh, you know his three dog night story? <laughs> yeah. You want to you want to share that one? I think so. It was um. Now they. No, a lot of Alabama. They were opening for three dog opening night. for three dog night, and so and they played Jeremiah was a bullfrog <laughs> numerous times. Yeah, I think opening for them. Yeah, they, uh. they basically <laughs> that's a Todd Snyder kind of thing, <laughs> or that's not the name of the song, but whatever you know, it was, but they pretty much played Joy all to the their world. Joy to the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and from what the way that story was relayed to me, that people were going ballistic, like <laughs> throwing. Throwing their chairs up on stage and really <laughs> taking really gotten hurt, really <laughs> taking it personally. <laughs> and I heard another one where uh, opening for Almond Brothers, Bruce was in charge of booking the opening acts, and there was supposed to be like I don't know three or four other opening acts, and it was this. And this is my understanding. I, it kind of. It could have been embellished. Yeah, but, yeah. We'll take a um, but, uh, but apparently, he uh, just booked his band under three or four different names. <laughs> and so they opened for themselves, opened for themselves, opened for themselves. <laughs> and um, and he, I think he was already tight with uh, Dwayne, who just thought he was hilarious. 
and that he he got it you know Dwayne got Bruce's out thereness and um so there I don't know how it all worked out money wise but you know it the show went on I guess he Mar- actually Bruce oh, no, just no. said March fifth, nineteen ninety. I remember that. So, uh, that so I guess first. that was so that was so the unit gigs were first. So so that's when we met Bruce with when Fish met Bruce when we did the aquarium rescue unit gigs with I can't even remember the first time. I don't know if it was like we saw them somewhere and and um, I, I mean we were trading gigs with widespread panic. Like we were opening for widespread and they would come up north and open for us and we were like both had kind of regional followings and we're trying to just make our way around the country. And, um, I, th- I think, I guess it must've been one of those forays into the South playing with widespread or something that we were introduced to ARU and ARU. I think they were, I mean, the details are so, mm-hmm. this is 27 years ago, but, it all but, uh, into one. but you know, but yeah, so I, they, um, somewhere in there we became introduced to them cause they were in that whole group of people. And, and then, um, and then they, 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 oh, I just remember them opening for us at the wetlands in New York and stuff like that. And, you but know. Fish improvised a little bit early on, right? You guys really dug into the improv, started to in the 90s. Would you, would oh, you agree? Well, I mean, you no, know, we were really influenced by the dad and the Allman Brothers and Santana and that whole improvisational element of earlier rock and roll, you know, the earlier generation of rock. And, and I mean, Bruce comes from that generation, but he was, you know, he, he was this whole other you know, neighborhood of, of, I mean, that, you know, I, I was like, Fish was influenced by all that stuff. And that was where, and jazz, I mean, heavily influenced by Joey Somerville, who's the, the trumpet player on this gig today, you know, today, I haven't seen him since oh, he moved down. He, he was a Burlington, Burlington, Vermont musician. And he moved to Burlington in 83, just like me and everybody in Fish did. And, and, um, I remember they, they Joey was part of the best group, of, the best sort of band in town. There was a sneakers jazz band. They played every Tuesday night in this little tiny bar called Sneakers, and um, we would go like every Tuesday night after rehearsal and go see them. And every once in a while, someone from our band might sit in with them or something like that. But mostly they played jazz standards. There was a guy named James Harvey who was the local kind of writing and arranging genius who. Great horn arrangements, and he ended up in Giant Country Horns, right? Yeah, James was on Giant. Was he on Giant? Well, and Dave Grippo, who was part of the Giant Country Horns, Dave and Joey, and and James, all played. And you know, uh, James was a really good drummer and piano player, but his main thing was was trombone. So those guys all played together all the all the time, and uh, 
and you know, then when Fish had the giant country horns, we we called on them. And um, I can't remember if Joe was part of the original giant country horns. He might have moved by then. But at any rate, you know, so th- like I knew Joey for I don't know 15 years or something before. Um, and it, what was what was the uh, oh. Uh, what was the original question? Let me rewind it. Just an improvisation. But do the oh, colonel, yeah, yeah. Do the colonel yeah. light the fire a little more that you already were inspired by it? But seeing what ARU did, did that in, at well, all? Well, I was saying jazz and jazz and yeah. Joey being, you know, they, you know, they, they were. He was part of a band that, you know, we we would go and watch jazz every Tuesday with them and listen to a lot of jazz records and and then there were the the rock bands that were that were hugely influential in terms of improvisation and you know and so that was always i i think improvising was always right from the very beginning was a big part of what we were looking to do for sure well let's change up the question how has bruce influenced you personally well bruce well it's hard to say. Like it's hard to really put your finger on. I think I think that's his goal is to somehow be this invisible influence or something. He, um, I think, I just always really related to Bruce and always. I I feel like for me when I met Bruce there was a, a like a kindred spirit in not taking yourself too seriously. I can really relate to that. I I I've never been able to take any part of the whole like fame and I can't take any of that seriously I really can't I completely respect you know fans who you know they like what you do and and they're very excited about it and stuff and they want to express however they want to express their excitement or gratitude about what it is that we or who, whatever you know artist that they like brings to their lives and that's great. I mean, I just, I just, um, in fish, we have this word gauze, gauzing. It's like if you, you know, if you go up to somebody like, oh man, you guys are so amazing. You guys are so amazing. So we, so he goes gauzing, like gauzing people. And I totally gauzed Wally, Denny Wally. He's, he's a fucking hero. Like, I was like, oh my God, you're the guitar player on Shiny Beast Bat Chain Puller, which is, you know, Captain Beefheart. It's my favorite Beefheart. Everyone always talks about Trap Mouth Replica. Ah, great, whatever. Oh, yeah. Tim, and I love that album too, but Shiny Beast is my favorite. It's, it's like what a Desert Island record for me. I mean, I would definitely, that's one of my most favorite records. And um, I've actually wanted to cover Suction Prints for years and Fish, but I, I don't think we'll ever get around to it. But I, I, you know, I got to go up and gauze, you know, Denny. <laughs> and I'm not, you know, I mean, that's the thing. I, I relate to it. I'm, I'm, I found myself on the other side of that fence just as much as mm-hmm. I'm like I met Ella Fitzgerald one time and oh. she said one sentence to me and I, I like I, I'll tell people about that the rest of my life ooh Ella Fitzgerald spoke to me you know like I mean I get that I get it right but I, I can't take any of it seriously <laughs> like cause I know when I'm you know like I know that oh man I mean like you know I, I, I you know I get to meet Kurt Vonnegut I, you know and I couldn't even I couldn't even fucking string together sentences you know talking to that guy and it was and, and I you know and I'm so I completely get it, but at the same, and I, you know, when I was talking to him, I, I, I fully recognized the fact that he was graciously 
tolerating my, you know, <laughs> like gauzing. And, and, all, and so, and I try to return the favor. Like, so when people are like that to me, I'm, I, I try to be, re- I was an asshole for one year. I gauzed you. I gauzed you. What year actually, was that? Actually. 1997. It was my year of acting horribly. I just didn't know how to handle any measure of fame and I was really getting pissed about it and then and then and then I actually met Vonnegut and Vonnegut was the guy that he That's was funny. so nice to me and so gracious and he's like hundreds of times more famous than I'll ever be and I thought you know what if that guy can be as nice to me as he was I, I better fucking get my shit together here it was quick, 1998 quick, Jazz Fest that I first met you and I was I, I think was in, I was okay by then I wasn't well, as much of an asshole I was in college and you know like I mean you're fish you know so I'm like Gauzing, as you'd say, and I gotta give you a hug. It's a great word, isn't it? It's so great. I I gotta give you. My bandmates are gonna be mad. I told I gave away the secret. Like uh, our podcast has a new word. I I had a bowl in my pocket, so I can't. That's how I came to meet you, and then. I, uh, I went to give you a hug. I'm like, hey, uh, you were just my favorite. I was going to give you a hug. You're oh, like, yeah, yeah. no, man, personal no, space. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Still that, my friends fuck no, with me about that 20 no, no, years no, later. That's okay, though. No, I, I, like, if I had walked up to try to hug Kurt Vonnegut, he probably would have done the same thing. And that's okay. Like, you're allowed personal space. And you're yeah, allowed yeah, yeah. to say, eh, you know, that's your physical space. Like, yeah. you know, and uh, that's, that's different. I think that's allowable. You're allowed to say no. Yeah, oh, You're allowed to politely absolutely. say no, no to people's <laughs> sure. advances, right? But, but you're not... But you're not allowed to be rude or mean or something, you know. Ah, and yeah, I think yeah, that yeah, for there was a year where my only rule now, and the only thing I, I still kind of I say no about it. I'm 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 pretty unapologetic about it. Is when people are waiting outside the hotel. Oh, you know, like when you get up in the that's morning. a little I mean, for stalkery. me. It's, it's the morning, and you're like you get up and you you go yeah. you go to sound check and stuff, and you know you leave the hotel, and the first thing is like a wall of. You know, eBay guys with like shit to sign, and they want, and I just beeline it right to the yeah. bus, and I go right, and my bandmates all sign the stuff, and they they think I'm a jerk for not doing that, but I, but I, I kind of like, you know, I, if you're gonna be like waiting out, it's, it's a little stocky. It's a bit invasive. Uh, yeah, but and waiting there, after and the gig. Is no, that I mean, right? if it's no after gigs, I mean, yeah. I mean, well, we That's like fair. and fish gigs. It's like we go right to the bus and we leave usually anyway. But if for whatever reason I meet somebody after a gig and they want me to sign stuff, I'm I'm fine with that. It's like after work and I can have a beer and hang mm-hmm. out and relax, you know. But before it's like you have your routine and you're kind of trying to, you know, and. and and p- people are fucked up, man. They they use their kids and stuff. Like there's, oh. there's there's there was this one woman for a while, like when we were in the south, that she would like kind of always be there with her her son. Like here's my little boy comes, and I like the first time, of course, <laughs> you're like, okay, I better puppy rip. puppy. And I go right, and then and then he was always there with her. Like after that, yeah. I was like, wait a minute, I've seen this person before, and and after a while, you're like, oh come on, man, now that's kind of gross. No. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I, you know, and it it just. Ulterior motive stuff like that. Just, I mean, I would never. I got five kids. I would never use any of my kids to mm-hmm. get to like some famous athlete or something that I want. That's come on. Well, we're we're talking. anyway. But but in Bruce, you know, the amazing thing is, you know, he's managed to, and people love him around here. And he's, you know, he's he just walks that line of just having a, maintaining a level of excellence and. In, in his, you know, his whole intent, release, and recovery theory, you know, and it may, and, and excellence and intent, but, you know, he never is, is his, uh, you know, the, the fame part of it and all the other stuff that um, it just, you know, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't take any of it seriously. And that, that's like kind of why I wear a dress. <laughs> I mean, the dress really represents, it's, 
you cannot put that thing on and go out on stage and take yourself seriously. You're, it's over. Is it here? The second, I don't have it. No, I only wear it for fish keys. But but it's my uniform in fish. You know, it's like I, I that and for me, you know, I walk out on stage and all the only thing I can possibly be there for is is music and and trying to play the music well because I certainly can't. You know, I'm not going to look good like Bowie or something. You know what I mean? Like, there's no style to that. It's just like, what is this fucking... You know, like, if you had never seen Fish before and you come to a Fish concert and you see me walk out in a dress, you're already probably a little like, uh... I, so, I, and then I'm already... I put myself ready. I have to earn it. Like, I've got to earn it every single fucking night. I've got to earn it again because you think I'm a dork. Like, you're looking up there like, if you've never seen it, you don't know anything about it, right? I mean, you might look at my bandmates and think whatever you think. But you're going to look at the guy in the dress and go, that guy's in the dress and it's kind of not even like a, it's kind of torn and fucked up and it doesn't even look good. Like, what, what's the deal here? What did you bring me to, honey? You know, what did, what did you really, you dragged this, this you, you you drag me out for this, right? right? And then, you know, if we play well, then it's like, oh, well. You know, the guy in the dress is he's a good drummer at least, right? And then you bring out the right, vacuum he, and really confuse her. He looks like an idiot, but right, right, and then right, and then the vacuum comes out, and it's really, you know, yeah, you're really like, oh, he that, you know, I mean, it's almost like that motherfucker better be able to play the drums, or I am leaving, you know, because this already is so stupid. <laughs> preacher vibe in me and he called me the reverend Mosier. the real the long name is the technical real name is the reverend Mosier from the hills of tennessee <laughs> so then when i went out we went out with fish they didn't know even i had the name jeff <laughs> they didn't even know so uh they i ended up in their book and uh that's how people knew me and then when i started Blueground, i'd say my i was jeff Mosier. And uh, they, people would ask me in interviews, are you kin to the Reverend Mosher from the Hills of <laughs> So I finally gave up, and I said, okay, yeah, I am that guy. And so anyway, it stuck, and I'm not thrilled with it, but as long as Bruce is on the planet, I'm going to use it. 
So. What are your memories of the very first time you, you played with them? Um, how did you guys work through, or, or did you discuss at all what was going to happen on the stage, or was it just jumping to the fire, and, and how, how long did it take you to adjust to how they played? It was a sound of maladjustment. We really, it was the sound of not planning. We never really discussed what we were going to do. We had one ARU rehearsal one time at Sipes Garage, and Bruce didn't show up. So we never really did rehearse. We would do three-hour shows and never discuss what we were going to do. And I didn't know I was an improviser until that moment because I'd come from that clone-prone, looking-at-each-other kind of, you know, bluegrass world where it's ensemble, you take a turn, you take a turn, you back up, you know, you vamp, now it's time for me. Yeah, it's like... And so it's very formal. And all of a sudden, I'm up there playing you know funk i didn't even know what funk was and the count was teaching me what funk was and jimmy was teaching me what funk was and why it was funk and what the one and the three were so i was like schooled into electric music by these guys and i had no idea they were as good as they were because i had no comparison so so not until i started blue ground undergrass trying to look for drummers and bass players did finally bruce came to me he saw my frustration and he said don't try to find Sipe and O'Teal. You won't find them. <laughs> so I did find incredible musicians, but I kind of let go of the ARU thing, and it just settled into this is Blueground Undergrass. And, but there wouldn't have been a Blueground Undergrass without Colonel Bruce Hampton. That was my – the basic way that Blueground worked was it was me melding Colonel Bruce ideas with Bill Monroe. And they have a child, and it becomes blue ground undergrass. That's pretty much what that was. Well, it seems like Colonel will. Some of the lessons he wants you to pick up yourself. I think one one thing I read about Herring was he said when he started playing with ARU, Colonel would do stuff behind his solos that would cause him to rethink how he performed. Did he do any of that sort of musical messages kind of thing to you? He did. He would make me sing on things I didn't know, and he would push me into a corner. And um, he only ever really, his only bottom line is that you play yourself. Everything else goes. Now, what is that? You have to decide. You have to let it come out and be willing to. Our band practices would consist of, and Dave Schools will tell you this, here at the Fox we, we did it one time during a widespread panic concert. We walked by the door, and we would watch each other walk by the door. So the band would sit into a room, and then each of us would walk by the door, and we would judge each other's intention by how the flow of how we walked were we walking with like you know everybody's looking at me while i'm walking or would we walk with this very flat kind of just being walk it all sounds like esoteric bs but to us it was yeah when you're living it it's real it's real when you're really doing it and 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 you're really trying to figure out how to be yourself on stage that is it was a big deal to us at first like david and them would laugh they thought we were like on acid or something but it was there was no pharmacological influences it was really us trying to get what bruce was saying which is basically three things 
Try to find the invisible whip, which is the invisible whip is when the music starts playing you. You let go enough, you yield your ears quick enough, fast enough, and in the moment, you quit looking at chicks, quit thinking about drinks, quit thinking about the break, quit worrying about the monitor mix, quit worrying about what you look like, quit worrying about if you need a haircut, quit worrying about... Just transcend your existence. You forget about everything. You yield your ears to one another, and then you become bigger than the sum total of your parts. That is the true definition of a band. As years went by, I realized Bruce's definition of a band, Jerry's definition of a band, Peter Owen's definition of a band, Robert Plant's definition of a band, all these people's definition of a band was very similar. They all really wanted to transcend and become bigger than the sum total of their parts. And then when that happens... There'll be a time, and I hope it happens tonight. If it can happen now in 2017, it could happen tonight. That the invisible whip shows up and everybody recognizes it. And nobody can take credit for it. And you just stand there. It's like the weather. You can't take credit for it. And... You could I, argue I, that's the creator. Yeah. I bring not it, to get religious. No, but, but it brings argument. tears to my eyes because it's what I live for. It has nothing to do with anything but a medicine that we've created for ourselves as human beings to pull the gun out of our mouth and to make us want to live another day. We're a very, very complicated species, and because we have to live in a movie that we kind of know the ending to. We know we're here, and we know we're not going to be here. So music really helps take the sting out of that by cataloging experiences, language, polyrhythms, and melody into these little packages that we call songs or performances. And it truly is a civilizing substance. And it, we're truly responsible for being a purveyor of it. And it's not about beer pot and pussy. And so... It can be, and there's nothing wrong with all of those things, but it's not about that. Right. And one of the reasons that I love Bruce so much is he is dead, deadly serious while at the same time completely not. On and the not serious note, just, though, yeah. didn't you, back, going back a little bit to the ARU days and... Tell us some of the shenanigans that would go down because we're, we're talking about a very serious side of Bruce, but... Yeah, the mantra of the day is take your craft seriously and not yourself. Yeah, and, and I mean, you guys would I mean, you come. Uh, the, the story that I always rings is uh, O'Teal and a tutu, and you know, like, just you guys would just yeah. have these shenanigans that you guys would do, like, as a band. Uh, O'Teal in a miniskirt, O'Teal in a marching helmet, me in a bathrobe, taping hair to pennies and putting a hair taped to a penny on each table, and then announcing to the audience, you know, whatever you do, please do not touch the penny on the table that has the hair on it and with a straight face you know we completely control the audience and there'd be people sitting there looking at the penny <laughs> while we're playing and always and like i said in bruce's film you know people didn't realize they 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 didn't realize it didn't mean anything to us it meant everything 
we would have a woman sitting and eat cereal and read a newspaper. <laughs> and what would happen is that wasn't silly to us. What she was doing is she was in her Taoist kind of way being in a completely different environment, doing something for no reason at all. She never looked at us, tapped her toe, responded to the music. She represented everything that was not going on on stage, but she was doing something completely different. And that was a statement from Bruce. And a lot of people dial him in as shenanigans but a lot of times he's uh, you know he's really dead serious about what he does there's sort of a a satire to it yeah cultural playfulness exactly it's kind of the uh, no thingness not nothingness but no thingness it's it's the detachment to things that is really important for Bruce to, to don't take yourself serious. You're really just running your hands over a piece of wood. Right. You, you have, you've glommed on to a craft and a tradition that has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with everybody that came before you and spent all that time. It's a human project. Now you're a human doing the project. So don't take yourself so serious. You're just running your hand over a piece of wood. And so on a certain level, what that does is it produces a musician that has a reverence for what they do and feels a responsibility for what they do without their ego being hijacked by fame because fame's a delusion you know i played in the parking deck here on friday on saturday i went to rehearsal on sunday it was among rock stars sunday for this thing mm-hmm. and now i'm here at the fox theater and then i'll go to a nursing home on wednesday and play danny boy on an alzheimer's unit and you know what bruce says about that it's all the same <laughs> I would say he can be summed up in it's all the same. Or like Dylan says, you can choose fortune or fame. You can choose one or the other, but neither of them are to be what they claim. Very profound. It was Dylan's words. I know, but still. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, by virtue of the fact that you can re- you've recalled them in this interview, I think you're paying homage to those words, you know. So you've 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 made them yours. Sorry, Bob. That's okay. But uh, like, he wouldn't even want to take credit for. Him, well, like Jeff Tweedy says, once the song is out there, it's everyone's. It's not your song anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about you a little bit. I know it seems real serious in here right now, but it didn't because you got to remember that the same guy we're talking about wrote by driving the wedges of huge stone into cradle-like bottoms, ramps of earth, trigger rope that prevented local circumstances from smelting paragraph text in the Crucible's expedition. And he also wrote that (laughs) the barren shore will gain the earth while the ocean will lose its gills. The air gains the birds' mental habits while their wings will lose the hills. So you take care of your flocks. Farmers earn livings along valleys. 
A stained soul cringes at the small details in the mirror of embarrassment. Two words that mean something together. Tom Cruise or Uncle Tom and then Uncle Tom Cruise and then Uncle Tom Cruise Control and then Uncle Tom Cruise Control Panel. Uncle Tom Cruise Control Panel Discussion. Uncle Tom Cruise Control Panel Discussion Group. Group sex, group sex therapy, group sex therapy department. Uncle Tom Cruise Control Panel Discussion Group Sex Therapy Department Head. Department Head Start, Head Start Engine, Engine Block, Head Start Engine Block Party. Party time, time peace, peace work, work out, side meet. Uncle Tom Cruise Control Panel Discussion Group Sex Therapy Department Head Start Engine Block Party Time Peace Work Outside Meat Market Fresh Mouth Wash Powder Puff Daddy Oh Say Uncle Off the top uh, of his head, people. No, no, He's I'm not. not I'm just saying. That's the second generation of his influence on me and Snake Oil Medicine sitting in Fitzgerald, Georgia, around a campfire. That O'Teal started the Uncle Tom Cruise, and then we just took it Whoa. to the next thing. Yeah. Why? Because of Colonel Bruce Hampton. Well what said, does it yeah. mean? <laughs> everything. Everything. <laughs> Nothing and everything at the same time, right? Exactly. I'll yeah. see you guys at 734. Exactly. That he does that for that same reason. See you at seven thirty eight. Yeah, the the first time I interviewed him, the last question I asked him was you speak about the importance of being egoless. And in every every time you've been in a band when they started to get big, you've stepped out. Is that because you fear that the ego starts to take is starting to take too much of a hold? And he said to me, he paused and he went, I'll get back to you on that one in fifty two minutes and eighty seven seconds. Before I even knew Bruce, before I got in the in the in the uh, van with him, I I always make my reservations at a restaurant with like you know eight oh three. It's never eight o'clock. And it's, and then when I met Bruce and I discovered like like this is the guy you right? had this yeah, in common. Like this, you know. I call I that it. a pre-connection. Did you have pre-connections with Colonel Bruce? He seems to have people yeah. had connections with him before they even met him. That would be one example. Did you have any like that? I just think that he filled a slot in my in my life that, that that religion had filled at one time, but not in a credible fashion. Which, so he's kind of a father figure to me. I think a lot of us we don't a lot of us don't have daddy issues, but a lot of us kind of needed a musical father because we really came from families that they appreciated the fact that we had talent, but they weren't really willing to get behind it. Not adaptive. Yeah, right. maybe your mom didn't yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah, you can play the banjo. I know you can play, but uh, it's not gonna. You gotta have something to fall back on. A plan it's religion, B. though. Religion. Talk about Zambi. Zambiism, if you don't mind. It's very basic. Joe Zambi is Chauncey Gardner of being there. He is a guy who, by virtue of the fact that he is himself he became he becomes a kind of a deity but not a worshiped deity a representative for bruce to spread taoist ideas through southern affected progressive jam roots rock avant-garde sensibilities and so by sticking to his guns about this guy zambi 
He's turned Zambia into a moniker or a symbol that can't be worshipped, can't be taken seriously, can only be laughed at, but is dead serious. And he'll be here tonight, but Bruce said you can't come till after eight o'clock. <laughs> so, you know. So you gotta you can't come till after eight o'clock. Will he be here at eight oh one? He he'd probably be here right after eight. And he even went to the trouble of having the Fox guy call Zambi and say it's crucial that you don't come before 8. We've got a a big plan. Of course, there is no big plan. (laughs) That's what those two anti-Zambi thugs were outside I'm like just going, you know, wow. And so, um, I mean, just to the degree to which he will go, he's and it's not cruel. It's just he's so committed um, is phenomenal. The other thing, too the end of the day if you take away all the laughter that Bruce has provided for so many of us our lives will be a lot poorer he's just full of joy he really is he the worst day of my life will be if he leaves first the planet just there's nobody like the guy found words about a great man and um we have these words from these great musicians thanks to matt wilson who um really did us a solid you know it shows yes. that he appreciates what we do but he put us backstage he knew we'd take it seriously and Took do very inform- very good care of us and and he put together this amazing amazing uh, historic event that shined a light on colonel mm-hmm. better than anything i've ever seen and matt i don't know where you're your your head's at but um what you did was right you you brought you brought everyone together in a way that no one could have and everybody is grateful for what you did kit uh kit uh, blancher and uh steve lopez who productioned and jennifer were, they did a wonderful job of making this all to happen 
the this the crew that they put together for the show last night was were all people that have worked with Bruce in one way, shape, or form. And I want to point out an egoless thing with Colonel Bruce. If you, know, you can go on YouTube, maybe we'll tweet it out. Um, the entire show is available. That's probably thanks to Nugs.net and Matt Wilson as well. Um, but uh, this was an event in honor of Colonel Bruce Hampton. And when he took the stage, I, I initially I, I tweeted something when he took the stage. But when he took the stage a second time, toward the end of the show, the big moment, he comes out on stage. And what's the first thing he does? He talks about Johnny Knapp and what a great and important musician he is. He immediately shines a light on the musician he respects, I think, maybe the most. Yeah. That says a lot about Colonel Bruce Hampton. And if you need more solace, the love light was cut off, wasn't completed. The beginning of the encore was improvisation. So, folks, the last full song Colonel Bruce sang was called I'm So Glad. I mean... He might have been spoofing us. This might have been his his choice to go out that way. The guy was dialed in. The man that knows people's birthdays, the man that knows more about people that the they man know who about themselves. Sometimes meet people out of the blue and tell them thing intimate things about their life, and he's not doing it to sell advertising and have a phone in psychic service. He's doing it to just enlighten people, and and it comes to it came to him. It just came to him. And so, I, I don't know. I mean, look. There's it, always been something larger going on with Colonel. Uh-huh. Why would there not be something larger going on on his final performance? Tell me that. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, again for listening. A big thank you to Josh Thane, our engineer, who, uh, Seth, also helped me with the music. I had an initial idea for the, for the music and was really kind of clinging to it. Oh, he was clinging, all right. Oh, grab. But Josh handled it the best way. He just started sending me examples of stuff we could use, a couple of which were perfect. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, great thank you, Josh. You did a, you really shined on this one, man. And I'd like to point out his band, Migrant Worker. I once saw Colonel Bruce sit in with them. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. And Alan Paul, uh, it, was, it was a book release for Alan Paul, who, by the way, wrote a wonderful eulogy in the Wall Street Journal this week, if you look it up. Excellent writer, great person. I also got to say this last piece of music is thanks to Z-Man and Panic Stream. Thank you for documenting the Colonel so well and shining a light on, on his live music. Um, you are part of getting his music out there, and it's appreciated. I don't know if people say that enough. The tapers and the recorders, people like Ron Kearns, um, mm-hmm. is part of the reason that basically Frightened Documentary is so excellent, because he would shoot a lot of these ARU shows that are now historic when nobody else was there. So there's footage that would not exist. A lot of amazing footage that would not exist if not for Ron Kearns. Thanks to people who reached out. Scott Bernstein over at Jambase. Uh, a lot of my friends. Uh, I was confused. Jefferson Waffle was very helpful. Yeah, um, all, all of our friends, Rob. Everyone's been, All of our friends. Our phones have been blowing up. And friends from far, a lot of folks have been reaching out. And uh, the, the, every, it's, it's nice to know how... How many people really knew how much we cared and care about this man? There would not be an Inside Out podcast without Colonel Bruce Hampton. There wouldn't be a lot without Colonel Bruce Hampton. All right. One more song. And uh, we're not sure when we're going to do another episode. We're, we're a little shocked. This was the most important thing is to get this out. 
Everything else is ancillary. So yeah, listen. If you got a story, a Bruce story you want to share, please send them to us. Yeah, inside out wtns at gmail dot com. We at some point in the future we'll be un- unrolling the interviews we did, and we'll gladly share listener thoughts in the intro or outro if you wish. If you want, if you're kind enough to share with us. Yes. All right. Thank you, everyone. Much love. <laughs>